0: Verdict, brought to you by Sputnik Africa. The third Belt and Road Forum for International Cooperation that kicked off on October the 17th comes to a close today in Beijing, China. The Belt and Road Forum is a high-level international meeting initiated by China to promote its Belt and Road Initiative. Which is a massive infrastructure plan aimed at uh, improving connectivity and economic cooperation between asia africa europe and beyond this forum brings together leaders from participating countries to discuss policy coordination infrastructure development trade investment and people-to-people exchanges basically many 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 issues it is held every two years and has been attended by heads of states business leaders as well as representatives from international organizations against this backdrop the president of the russian federation vladimir putin made a trip to china to meet his counterpart president xi jinping And during a press conference, he spoke about the development of the Belt and Road Initiative and even mentioned the hospital attack in Gaza that happened on the night of October the 17th. Now, is the Belt and Road Initiative even beneficial for Africa? That's my question. What values does this initiative stand for? What does the absence of European leaders from this international forum mean? Well... To help me digest all these questions, I'm joined by my friend Kofi Kwaku, who is a senior lecturer at the Center for Africa-China Studies at the University of Johannesburg in South Africa. Kofi, welcome to AfroVerdict. Thanks for joining me. All right, Mr. Kuwaku. So the Belt and Road Initiative is celebrating its tenth year anniversary at the Belt and Road Forum this year. What does this initiative mean for the African continent? And while on that topic, uh, talk to us about the some of the projects. Uh, that that this initiative has brought into fruition, so to say.
1: I think this is a very important anniversary. Ten years is usually uh, quite a decade and but it's also a short time. It's not quite, I would say in the, um, in the idea of uh, the lifespan or life cycle of any uh, projects or even any living creature. Ten years is still very young. However, an incredible success from the Belt and Road uh, Initiative, in a sense that I think, in fact, I would even agree with uh, President Xi Jinping, who is saying that it's it's a project of the century, and I agree with him. I think it's bold, wide, uh, challenging the the sort of uh, status quo that we know about about especially about the West, and there hasn't been any other project that has such a global Uh, with and then also expansion in such a short period of time. And even more important is that it's a project that brings together, you know, a whole number of countries and civilization and conflict and countries that disagree with each other. But what they all agree on is to sort of have some kind of new um, global connection among nations and even more important is that the Belt and Road Initiative is a means to an end, and that end is really peace, development, infrastructure, people-to-people, cooperation, and relationship among the civilization of the world. And we haven't seen such a modern project before, and that's what makes it so powerful, Um and I think the role of China and, and, and of course, uh, in this project is so important. And of course, that of Russia as well, although there hasn't been too many uh, big projects because Russia is already, um, part of that area. But we know that the relationship between Russia and China are already evolving very fast, especially after the, uh, Ukraine, you know, crisis. So this isn't short what I can tell you about the project, but in Africa, I think what is essential to remember is that there are many projects, not just in gestation, but the numbers are growing so fast. I mean, at the 200 and more billions of U.S. dollars that China is putting into financing projects in Africa, I think there are a few that can be plugged out. Um, You have, for example the Mombasa Nairobi Railroad. And most of them, if not all of them, are basically in an infrastructure uh, section uh, area of development. But also many of them are now coming on stream in energy. So let's start with the uh the infrastructure. We know that in Algeria um there's the the BRIs involved in what's called the Churchill Rang Expressway and Port. This is an integrated infrastructure that brings together um, roads, highways in a part of the world where there is very little infrastructure since the West has been there. You know, connecting Algeria with uh, Niger, a little bit with Mali, Nigeria and Chad. This will unlock an immense potential of around about 275 million people and even more. And when it's already underway, uh with the link to the port in Algier, which will have the which will be a, a deep port uh, a deep port infrastructure to link Africa to the uh to Europe and that's a very important one. The second one is of course the um uh, the railroad between Nairobi and Mombasa. To sort of uh, drain, if you want, to make sure that the, the the sort of eastern parts on the and the coast on the ocean, and uh, and then the inland in uh, in Kenya are really serviced, and we haven't seen this before. And since the British were there, they didn't do anything but just kill the Mau. Mau. Sorry to say this, but I think this is what many of us remember. And the Bri has managed to sort of unlock that space, which is very, very important. In Ethiopia as well, um, there's the Addis Ababa to Djibouti Railroad, uh, which is also a big one. I mean, this is almost unbelievable, connecting um, uh, uh, Kenya, uh, Ethiopia, sorry, and then uh, Djibouti, which I am sure you know where countries that are close-bordered and then Djibouti is on the side of the sea. So that link to the sea is very, very important. Uh, already 70% of the trade, at least between those two countries, are going through this railroad. So these are two, but there are many more. There's, for example, um, the deep ports that China, uh, through the BRI, is building in uh, Mozambique. And then there's another deep port as well, which is also been kicked in much more recently, in Namibia. So all these, I mean, I can go on and on. There are many of them that I can go on and on. There are already and new, there's only another one, a railroad in uh, Nigeria, linking Kano in the northern part and then uh, Lagos. So all these infrastructures for Africa, I think mean, what is important is that set the foundation for infrastructures, the planning that will help Africa, especially the Africa continental free trade area which desperately needs very functional and powerful infrastructure to go with.
0: Great. Thanks a lot for that uh, very detailed respond. Um, can you explain maybe to our listeners as well how the Belt and Road Initiative has established itself as an instrument for promoting a multipolar world in recent years? And what is the recipe for its success in this area?
1: Look, it's very clear. First of all, the ideology behind it, which means the ideal to connecting nations, is exactly what brings the world together. And I think that multipolar idea is that if you could connect nations by railroad, airlines, ports, and all kinds of infrastructure, you have a basis for bringing the world together. And bringing a diverse world together, that makes it already multi-world, multipolar, multi-diversity, but most important, multi-seeking peace of people who want to trade, who want to live in peace. And I think that's the basic idea behind the Belt and Road Initiative, launched in 2013 by President Xi Jinping. And at first, there was a big, big... Um, Intake, of course, people realized that this was very powerful, but West, the Western world, led by United States, realized that, my goodness, if we let this thing go, we're going to be losing. And, of course, the Belt and Road Initiative, by its own ideal, has now become the sort of enemy, declared enemy to the West because it's bringing an alternative world, which is not a multipolar world, which means a unipolar world led by the United States for years, which is the status quo now many nations want to see disappear or change dramatically. And the reason is simple. The U.S.-led uh, unipolar world hasn't really built a world of peace. War everywhere, conflicts wherever the United States goes, and this has left the terrible memories in the mind of people. By contrast, the BRR, really gives a sense that we can live together at pace. But most important, we can have a win-win approach to this multipolar world.
0: Oh, thanks a lot. Um, for trade routes and infrastructure to work, security is obviously uh, it's a must. How can the Belt and Road Initiative help to reduce conflicts in the countries that are engaged uh, in this initiative?
1: Well, as I said earlier, the ideal about or behind the Belt and Road Initiative is that countries have to link with the sense of peace, the sense of security. I mean, security goes across so many areas, economic security, cultural security, food security, you know, uh, financial security, political security, sovereignty. I mean, this is large. But one of the things that the Chinese, especially President Xi Jinping, would have been pushing uh, lately, especially since last year, is that sort of global development uh, initiative, security initiative, but you can't have global initiative, uh, security initiative without also a global development initiative. So both go together. There is no development without security as there is no security without proper development. So this sort of very, you know, I wouldn't say Chinese, but philosophically, yin and yang approach that go together. So security and development are the faces, the different faces of the same coin. And that's really what's really encouraging many people to believe that the BRR, or at least the Belt and Road Initiative, brings with it the notion that security will also bring great development for them. That's why they're all joining mm-hmm. Thank
0: you. Thank you. Uh, Western leaders, as you might have noticed, did not take part in this year's forum. And uh, among the European Union countries, the only country that was present was, in fact, uh, Hungary. Why did European heads of states take this position? And how could their non participation in this initiative proposed by China affect Europe's future?
1: Look, I won't speak for European nations, they they have their own reasons, but as an observer and an analyst of the geopolitics, it is very clear that European nations that are now under the vassalization of the United States have very little to say. They can't really escape from that sort of yoke from the United States. Uh, for some reason, many of us are looking at this with some kind of dreadful almost unbelievable psychological surprise to say, my goodness, you have a situation where you have an hegemon that has under its feet a whole bunch of vessel vessel states. And we've seen this in history. We know uh, history has taught us how this thing works. So the Europeans are completely afraid. And this is something many people already know. The fear of disengaging from the United States is very difficult for them because they will probably suffer from some consequences. So many of them are afraid they're speaking in tongues, in private, um, about the fact that they're suffering from their their partnership with the United States. Europe is now, right now, very, very fragmented. So they don't, in public, they portray this unity, but in private, they know the fragmentation is now consequential. Germany suffering from its partnership with the United States, after the blowing up of the uh, the pipeline um, up in the northern sea there, but most important, all of them are now under a great deal of stress. So they can't really go to to you know to China right now. In fact, if you remember, uh, President Emmanuel Macron of France uh, had a, an incredible trip um, to China, where the Chinese President Xi Jinping rolled up a red carpet, and he said it very clearly that Europe is worried about that va- Europe doesn't really doesn't like the vassalization of, of being uh, with a, a, a vessel of the United States. Although he said it in the public, that was a very rare admission. But many of us who have been observing the geopolitical dynamics know that Europeans and Europe in general is under the U.S. thumb. But what is more important is that they are not present at the, at the Belt and Road uh, Initiative Forum in Beijing this week because they're afraid. They're largely afraid. And this will have some consequences because about more than 130 or 32 and growing number of countries have joined this project. This is a big project. Two thirds of the world is already on it. Europe and the United States represent a very small percentage of the world. And the world now is shifting into Building it, you know, constructing it for peace and development rather than for wars, destructions, tensions, and conflict and this I think for me, is a very powerful picture that the europeans they may not miss that picture, but they they're gonna join it a little bit later, and I hope it won't be too late for them.
0: Thank you very much at the Valdi discussion club that took earlier um a couple of weeks ago, Vladimir Putin named the six principles that Russia is aiming for in terms of international relations. Uh, These are an open and interconnected world, diversity, maximum representativeness, universal security, justice for all, as well as equity. Does this Chinese initiative correspond to these principles listed by Russia's president?
1: Yes, very much so. There's a lot of uh, matching there. Those six principles already, um, if you want, aligned with the uh, the BRI major ideals and principles. So there is a match, and the match is already seen by not just on paper, because already President Xi Jinping and then uh, President Putin has signed a deal, of partnership, but even deeper, a deal of state of president friendship. This has almost never been seen before between China and Russia. We've seen a few things in the old days, but this modern world getting together by two countries that are some of the two of the biggest countries in the world. Russia, 17 million square kilometers. And of course, China, a little bit over 9 million. And there are borders between them. So the geography, the demography, the geopolitics, The global politics and then economics and trade binds them together so much so that, you know, those principles that you just mentioned are already part of that kind of future. It's not just a short future, but it's an existential future between these two countries. And they're going to have to go with it because uh, it's very simple. The West, the collective West is already after them and they want to destroy them. So they have no choice but being together. And I think that is really important. One thing that I think, um, probably out of those five, pr- those uh, six principles is probably, uh, it's already implicit is the idea of peace. And then, of course, the idea of inclusive win-win that that should be a really part of these principles. But I think it's a transversal, uh, theme that's already in those six themes. Hence, I think these are great principles that will help. To connect with the Belt and Road initiatives very well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's long been established that a win-win is more uh, is more profitable than win-lose. Um, Moving on to the statements that Russia's president made during the press conference earlier today, Um, he said that Moscow has become one of China's main trading partners. And in general, the welcome given to the Russian president in Beijing is, so to say, evidence of the strengthening of the relations between the countries on all fronts. Uh, Don't you think that the West's actions and statements towards both Russia and China have only pushed the countries closer together.
1: Yes, indeed. I mean, it is very clear, as I said also earlier, those two countries know the belligerence, the visible belligerence that the collective West led by the United States projects against Russia and China have made those two countries realize that they have an existential partnership, friendship much deeper than what they had before. Because if they're not together, they will probably die to, uh, somehow um, because the West is going to divide them. And increasingly, we will see these two countries partnering, doing business, trade, people-to-people partnerships and relations. Already we know in the past year or two, um, the trade uh, between Russia and China has gone about. and more have never seen such a powerful and fast growth. And that kind of growth indicates already that the two countries must work together, live together, and perhaps, and uh, many people say, God forbid, if they have to face the United States and then the powerful United States and Europeans die together. But I don't think they'll die together. This probably won't happen because the rest of the world will try hard not to have these two countries disappear.
0: Yeah, I mean, they, they are key partners to, to many regions uh, globally. Furthermore, mm-hmm. uh, Vladimir Putin declared Russia's interest in, develop, in the development of China's Road and Belt Initiative. What opportunities have opened for other countries due to Russia's participation in this project?
1: Well, there are many of them. I think um, as part of that, one thing we probably didn't talk about was the the BRICS. You know, Brazil, oh, yeah, sure, sure. Russia. You know, um, India, China, and South Africa, and now the BRICS Plus with no other countries: Saudi Arabia, Iran, and so forth. Join Egypt joining in that kind of connection with new organizations that are now emerging is really important, and I think the role of Russia has become almost incredible, especially the past, you know, three years or so. But in fact, it was even before that in Syria, when Russia started to make some move in Syria, cementing the power of Russian defense forces, military, but also with the sense that they're not using defense for defense or attacking, but to set up peace, to to reduce conflict in the world. And that had them move very quietly. In fact, a country that many people I haven't paid attention to the Central African Republic. And uh, uh, President Twardera called up uh, Russia um, to help. And so far, the country has been really stable. Very little is coming out of the Central African Republic because of the stable nature of the security there. And I think the role of Russia has been extraordinary. Again, I'm bringing it back to Africa. From there on, Russia has now been involved in the crisis in Mali. You know, the French have been in West Africa for more than a century. And West Africa, or what we usually call Francophone Africa, has never seen not just peace, but some kind of development. You know, they've been sucking up the resources, and um, their presence was justified, always been justified, fighting terrorism. They failed in Mali. They failed in Burkina Faso, they failed in Niger, and in Chad, on and on. And then, of course, they're now worried that because they haven't been successful enough, they're now blaming Russia uh, for being, you know, quote-unquote, playing a bigger role and having influence in that region. And I think, let me circle back again to to the role of Russia, but most important, the leadership of President uh, Vladimir Putin has been exceptional. Uh it's very, very rare to see that kind of leadership popping up. And of course that of also Xi Jinping. Um they, these are the two leaders with a very high approval rating, not just in their own countries, but also outside as global leaders. It is almost incredible to see that kind of leadership thinking about peace and we need peace in the world. And these two with a few more of course um that have been, you know, uh, attacked by the West, are doing exceptionally well. Uh, I, I I would take, you know, a very important, I'm making a very good point, because the world needs a bit of order, some discipline, but most important, peace. Less conflict, less destruction, less, you know, uh military intervention in places to kill people wantonly, and in Vietnam, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, it's just the world has, has enough of this. And then, of course, now in Palestine. So we need some serious leadership. And international institutions are proven to be failing. The United Nations is a dysfunctional organization that just issued press releases. Of course, there's some other work that are being done uh, to feed people and so forth. But the key, important decisions have been, you know, disrespected by many players around the world. And that must change. And I think with the emergence of, you know, um, groupings like the BRICS, the Shanghai Corporation Organizations, the Eastern Eastern uh, Economic Forum um, with Russia, China, and other uh, East Asian countries are now showing the way, the, the, the existence of the new development bank of the BRICS. All these are now looking for alternative ways to really change the world, from a unipolar, very divisive world to a much more multipolar world where, with the hope and ideal, that conflicts will be reduced and that people um, of the world will have a say, you know, an inclusive say on how the world works, and of course, on how they themselves live on this earth.
0: Thank you very much, Mr. Kwaku. Furthermore, moving on to more recent events that we've seen uh, literally last night, I'm um, talking, of course, about the um, attack on the hospital in Gaza. According to Vladimir Putin, the that attack, um, which is, a, of course, a tragedy and a humanitarian catastrophe, may be a signal that it is time to end the ongoing conflict. What role do you think could Russia and China, and perhaps uh, since you've spoken about BRICS and perhaps even other BRICS countries play in resolving the conflict?
1: Yeah, it's it's a terrible uh, tragedy to see what's going on in West Asia and especially in Palestine and in Israel. And this has been going on for decades, since 1948 and even before that. And it doesn't seem like the people are running the world. Can't find or want or refuse to find a solution to a very, you know, uh, clear forward issue. I mean, I hear a lot of observers saying that it's a complicated issue. It's difficult to know. It's not a complicated issue. It's a very simple forward issue. There are people whose land have been taken and United Nations resolutions are very clear about it. Then those land need to be returned to them so that people can live in peace, the the Israelis or the Jews and the Palestinians can live in peace in a home where they can share that same present and future. I think that's what it is. And if those resolutions have been flaunted by so many, uh, by Israel and its support, especially the United States and Europeans for so many years, uh, that makes it difficult. But there's now, to answer directly your question, an emerging group of nations that are saying, This really must stop. But people have been trying it. What needs to be done? I mean, President Putin himself has said it, but it was a bit vague to say, okay, must stop. What needs to be done to have that stop? I mean, they have a hospital being bombed with 500 people dead yesterday. I mean, that's a tragedy that shouldn't happen in the world, quote unquote, that calls itself democratic and civilized. And blaming, you know, um, militants or terrorists for a place that Israel controls is really misleading people. If Israel really controls its place, is in charge, why allow such think they happen? So the hope is that Russia, China, and the BRICS nation will start putting pressure, not just on the United Nations because it's a dysfunctional place. They will understand that they need this system to put pressure on Israel and, of course, and the United States. To be able to bring the parties not just on the table, but just have the respect for the UN resolution, that shouldn't be difficult. And I think the difficulty, of course, comes when the UN, uh, the United, the UN cannot execute. The United States and the United Nations Security Council is really feckless. It just can't move. And I think the hope, and we're really hoping that this, uh, the crisis taking place in the region, doesn't really widen or expand. To other groups, because people are very angry, very distressed, and tense at this moment. So, bringing people to talk about it to a peaceful closure uh, solution is important. But I don't think we'll have peace very soon. So, this is a very worried situation for me.
0: Yeah, same on my side. Hey, it's just terrible to see the the people suffering on uh, civilians suffering on both sides. It's it's a real tragedy. Indeed uh lastly, uh, so I won't keep you much longer. The Russian president also said that the United States are involved in conflict in the Ukraine more and more, given that Washington has voiced its support for Israel and many fear an escalation of the situation around Taiwan. What dangers does this pose for the world
1: It's a really serious danger the u UN, the United States if you look at the i mean the evidence right now, the past that's just 10 years, but 30 years or so. It's just not involved in building a world for peace. It looks like peace is a very difficult commodity for the U.S. to consume. And largely by the fact that every time the U.S. makes a move anywhere, it's military, setting up bases, you know, coercing people to allow the bases to be built, you know, all living in distress like in Afghanistan or in Vietnam. You know, we see that on and on and on, even with the what's happening in in Palestine and Israel is just bringing in some of the top uh, naval ships there. I mean, what kind of messages is that? It just doesn't help. And I think there's a great concern that the U.S.'s role is not in peace, but in war and in destruction. And people are very concerned. It seems, I mean, for many of us who are observing this, and many of us who had a chance to You know, being educated in the United States, we're torn to see that their successive government, for some reason, can't think about peaceful solution to any problems around the world, global problems. So they're now being isolated, in fact, with the U.S. being isolated with with many of its European vessels. They've been isolated. They're trying their best. The information warfare is making people believe that the U.S. is looking for peace. But we don't see it. A lot of it's in, in words. And the concern is that there may be some war. The US is now saying that China is an existential threat to its future. Russia is also an existential threat. I mean, every time you hear US leaders talk or have a, 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 a you know, an ex- express, express themselves, it's, it's just tension, it's conflict. That's one of the reasons many people believe there will be tension. However, this time, it might be a little bit different. It seems the U.S. probably understand more powerful people standing up to it and its vessels than just cowering down. And I don't think Russia and China will be cowering down. And this coalition between Russia and China will be a very formidable opponent to the United States. They better be very careful. Because I think a large part of the world, quote-unquote the global south, is now looking at a different world where there is no wars or there's just limited wars and to build the world rather than
0: destroy it. I like the way you um, you explain things and take it to a, a more abstract level, uh, Mr. Kwaku. Thanks a lot, Prof, for joining me today. Unfortunately, our time is up um, That's okay. for for this interview. But yeah, I'm sure we will engage further on uh, on various number of topics and issues. Once again, thanks a lot for joining me. You're welcome. Thanks, Victor. All the best. All right, that was uh, Kofi Kuwaku, senior lecturer at the Center for Africa-China Studies, University of Johannesburg with us. Prof, thanks for joining me today and giving us your deep analysis of the Belt and Road Initiative, the significance of the forum, and uh, taking apart Vladimir Putin's remarks for us as well. I've, uh, I've always been a proponent of a multiplicity of opinions on all matters, literally all matters. And I mean, when it comes to politics... A diversity of opinion is the only way to find the middle ground. So moving from South Africa, let's head to West Africa, specifically to Ghana, as we have a new guest on our podcast, Dr. Isaac Nonu, lecturer at the Center for African and International Studies, University of Cape Coast in Ghana. He holds a PhD in International Relations, a master's degree in Communication Studies. His research interests cover international relations, political economy, foreign policy analysis, conflict management and security, diplomacy, communications and African studies. He has uh, published scholarly articles in journals such as the China Journal, the African Review and the online journal of communication and media technology amongst numerous others. He has published a number of articles on security and nuclear proliferation, terrorism and radicalization, international relations theories, international political economy in Asia and Africa, foreign policy, diplomacy and agency in Sino-Africa relations. And he even edited a book called India and China in Africa, a comparative perspective of the oil industry. His current research project spans agency in Sino Africa and Ghana relations, digital diplomacy, and China, Taiwan, US, and Iran quadrilateral relations. Dr. Nunu, welcome to AfroVerdict. It's a real pleasure to have you with me today. All right, so let's start with the Belt and Road Initiative in general. Uh, What does this initiative mean for the continent, and what projects um, on the African continent of this initiative come to mind when you try and explain it to people?
2: Xi Jinping's initiative, the Belt and Road Project, initially, of course, when it was introduced in 2013, Africa was not originally part of it. But later, Africa had to be considered, um, thanks to Jasmine lin the former chief economist of the World Bank. And since then, many African nations have actually signed up for the program. But we can uh, mention of not uh, make mention of not uh, less than forty or forty plus um, African nations that are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And many of these nations, obviously, you can see the number of projects are being undertaken in those countries. We can cite several examples that projects have been initiated and are obvious for everyone to see. Of course, there are also and the uh, pessimist questions about whether that's not going to lead to any death trap like we had in Sri Lanka and maybe other places. But the truth remains that there are clear projects that have been initiated that one can make mention of them, right? For instance, if you take Algeria, we do have the Churchill Ring Expressway and port. That links the Mediterranean with the African interior. And if you take Ethiopia, for, instance, for example, we do have the Addis Ababa to Djibouti railway, which is actually completed, that people can attest to that. We also have the, in, in, within Djibouti, we have the port of Dulare. Um, the port of Dolari, that actually links it to, which we may refer to as Ethiopia's gateway to the world, the world trade in, in essence. The East African railway corridors are also there. If you take Kenya, for instance, Mombasa, Nairobi railway that connect the capitals to the ports, that one is also there. In Mozambique, we, we, we tend to have the uh, Maputo Katembe Bridge which is actually Africa's longest suspension bridge. It's more like something that was done in the similitude of what we have in Beijing, Shanghai, and other places in in China. Nigeria, for instance, we do have the Lagos Kano Railway. In Uganda, we, we also have the Etembe Kampala um, expressway. So clearly we have a number of, and these are just a few of the initiatives that in, in, in Eritrea we do have, in South Africa, we do have other uh, projects that are going on. Okay. Even places where actually the line itself, I mean the line as in the map of the um, <coughs> of the obo as I refer to it, okay, one belt, one road, doesn't pass through, even those ones they stand, because it is believed that, for instance, after is going to gain a lot the the African continental free trade um, area is going to benefit a lot as many of these countries within Africa are connected by railways right championed by the obo initiative obviously after itself too is going to benefit a lot
0: all right and how has the belt and road initiative managed to position itself as an instrument for promoting a multipolar world, especially in recent years?
2: Yes. um, If you look at arguments that are advanced by both um, Global South Scholars and scholars from the worst. Clearly, you can see we have the optimist and then we have the pessimists, obviously. But from a realist point of view, you know, realism, in international relations, from a realist point of view, there's no doubt that such global initiatives, in but let me say that it is one most single globalized initiative in modern history. I mean, there's no doubt about that. If you look at its very scope, the areas it passed through, and in terms of geopolitical um, enclaves that it, it also captures. It's the most single globalized initiative in modern history. And it's the more reason why some argue to the effect that it challenges the Britain Wood institutions, it challenges Americans' global initiative and even its influence. And not only, you know, with, in the name of OBO, we have several other Funds or financial institutions that have also been set up to engineer the goals of Belt and Road. Of course, AIIB is there. And if you take AIIB, for instance, a number of European countries are also members, actually, of the AIIB, and not only Asians. It tells you how the Chinese influence is actually gaining ground. So, and wherever OBO project passes, the onus is on the Chinese government and the government of the host nations to ensure that security matters of security are taken seriously, so the Chinese will obviously have a security base to a larger extent of collaboration with those nations to secure the resources, to secure the investments. Right, and again, in, invariably, the, those people, even if they are not ardent allies, to a larger extent economically. They become allies, and to take any strong decision that goes against China, they'll look at it again because of the economic interdependency. We're not talking about economic depend- interdependency as it exists between China and the um, US and maybe Japan and many, maybe other, other nations like also like India, those that are suspicious about Chinese activities. We're talking about economic interdependency where a project that as a nation you are part of it. it is established in your own corridors and you have a responsibility to ensure that the, the project succeeds. So indeed, beyond Belt and Road there are many initiatives that the Chinese have actually introduced that clearly kind of um seems to um give alternative um well provide alternatives to the Britain Wood institution, the American led global order and so <laughs> well, beyond beyond the economic aspect of it politically realists may look at it and say, yes, we do have state interest in there, and we may even have a zero-sum game in there. But it all depends on local content of those host nations. If your local content is strong, definitely you must be able to exercise agency in that um, relationship. So, yes, to a large extent, it poses that and it can challenge the world all that. But let me also be clear about this, that... The same system has benefited the Chinese so much. And if there's any nation that has benefited immensely from the global order, the existing status quo, is the Chinese. So a system that you've benefited so much from, would you really see that system tumble? So obviously, like we refer to them, particularly the BRICS members, right? As uh, emerging and re-emerging powers, particularly in the 21st century, they would want to see reforms than to um, than to see a total overhaul of the system. So it's not something that the Chinese tend to actually overhaul the system, but rather to seek reform. That one does know that the Chinese, together with their allies, particularly the Brits and others like um <coughs> sorry others like Turkey, uh, others like Turkey, uh, like Turkey, India, and many other. Um, emerging countries, they would want to see that, but not necessary to, to destroy the system entirely, except that they want to make sure their voices are equally heard and perhaps respected. And as I already indicated... Indeed, where those projects are, the participating countries, they themselves have a responsibility to ensure that the projects succeed. But of course, we cannot also rule out, (laughs) always you may have both transnational actors and and, and, and non-state actors and obviously state actors who would also want to kick against initiative no matter how good they are because they equally have their own interest and they would want to pursue their interests and the detriment of many, many others. So for the project to succeed, both the host countries and the leader that is China that is championed it must come together to A kind of fashion out security systems that could be put in place that is not so politically inclined. You see, it is very important that when any security system is being put in place, the issue of politics must clearly be ruled out and should be on the basis of security for safeguarding the success of the projects. But I do know that it's it's not an easy thing, given given that many of the countries have alliances elsewhere. They they they, they have their own um, affiliate affinities, and they kind of loyal to many other powers. It's not going to be easy, given, particularly the European countries and the concept of the West which, of course, then encapsulates the U.S. and its influence. It's not an easy, you take Japan and Asia, and the fact that they're not part of it, America (laughs) is not part of it, I mean, that alone, and they have given their reasons, and clearly you can see that it's more of a great power competition, great power rivalry, great power suspicion, and all that. So, given that some of the members are already at least sympathizers of either America or Japan or any other great power that is not so enthused about the project, they would also want to clearly influence other members to to to, to see to you that the project has not become that gigantic as it seems to be projected to to kind of um limit US's influence or even I renegade the concept of the West and its achievement given the EU and over the years what they've been able to achieve economically, politically, and even ideationally in terms of values and all that.
0: Over 140 countries are signatories to the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, but for trade routes and infrastructure to work, security is an absolute must. Now, how can the Belt and Road Initiative help to reduce conflict in the countries that participate in this initiative?
2: There should be clear commitment document,
0: clear commitment
2: document that onions out differences, so that both parties would would know and appreciate their responsibilities to safeguarding and ensuring the success of all the programs. And I am glad that the Chinese in particular do not necessarily transport political systems, right? And Chinese in particular, at least for now, have not engaged explicitly in the attempt to change regimes and we all know that when it comes to Chinese and their assistance is more of a conditional free, um, condition free assistance. And that's the more reason many nations, whether you are democratic, a liberal democracy, or democracy, liberal democracy, or even undemocratic, They they kind of do not really face much problem in dealing with all nations, irrespective of your political system. And so I hope that the same non-alignment movement principle and chinese own culture and social principles, the Confucius principles of non-interference and and all that mutual benefit and all that will also come to bear on the project, which will indeed go a long way to help in the project um, I'm
0: succeeding. You probably noticed that there weren't many Western leaders present at the Belt and Road Forum. Um, from the European Union only Victor Orbán of Hungary was present. Why, in your opinion, do we see this lack of representation by European heads of states? And as a follow up, how does this non-participation of the west affect Europe's future?
2: In fact, it is not surprising to
0: me that the European
2: um leaders did not show so much support for this year's forum. Um we all know that um, this comes from the father, from several Angles, several reasons may be adduced for that, but typically, um, I think that the problem has to do with Russia and Ukraine, and the fact that the Chinese have been accused for not openly um, condemning Russia, obviously, but if... The Ukraine incident is not that random. would have referred to maybe COVID during the time how the Chinese were not that forthright in admitting that the vaccine, oh yeah, sorry, the, the, the virus actually originated from there. The South virus originated from there. But that, I believe that the world has gone over that. The Chinese um, later really showed so much commitment to helping other nations to overcome the, the plague. And so now, what if there's any strong accusation it has to do with Russia Ukraine war, right? That the Europeans believe that Russia and um, China perhaps should also be forthright in condemning Russia. But obviously, they, they, this is not only about China, even India too has not openly <laughs> condemned Russia and many other nations. And they're all doing this for um, political prudence, definitely. Yeah, they want to be that balanced and not you know, take sides with any group in. You know, I, I believe that if there's nothing if there's anything at all clear you can also see that the Chinese have also not typically committed themselves to arming um, Russia and even though they've not openly condemned they haven't committed themselves to um um, um kind of condemning Russia, supporting Russia with ammunitions. That's not something that we have seen yet. So I'm not surprised that they are not. I believe that it is to register their disappointment as far as Chinese position on the Ukraine-Russia war is concerned. And I'm also not surprised that the Hungarian president is the only one attending. I mean, we all know that Orbán <laughs> for some time now, I would say, has been the odd one the eccentric one among the European leaders, and sometimes Poland leader also does so, Though, but clearly, Orban has taken a different position altogether, and he, on many occasions, do not agree with the European leaders on many issues. So I am not so surprised, but I believe it's to drag home some message. But as to whether to have any significant Impact on the project going forward. Uh, you know, it is interesting that Europeans will sanction Russia, of course, and let me say the West because it includes America, which actually is in this. We sanction Russia in many ways, but initially, remember, they didn't even touch energy because energy was very essential to them. And we're talking about national interests. So even though they may not participate, I must say that once the project is something that um, ties in with their national interest. It's not something that they're going to really typically fight against the project itself because national interest is very important to them. And regime survival is another thing. And if you want your regime to survive, then national interest might be taken seriously. Your people need employment. You need money. They should be successful. Capacity building. So if the project could lead to all these, then the regime in power, stands to benefit so that's not something that they are typically going to going to um, fight against
0: earlier this year at the Valdai discussion club russia's president vladimir putin listed the six principles that russia is aiming for in international relations Uh, namely these are diversity maximum representativeness, universal security, an open and interconnected world, justice for all, as well as equity. From your analysis, does this Chinese initiative correspond to these principles listed by the Russian president?
2: Clearly, if you look at Obo, I mean, one belt, one road initiative, right? You, you can clearly see that maybe Russian president was just um, outlining the very principles that underscores the project itself. Because the Chinese foreign policy has always hinged on the fact that they don't believe in interference, interfering, not first, but they believe in win win approach, mutual benefits. And <laughs> so if you look at open diversity and all that, that's the same thing. Because the Chinese talk about Guanxi. Guanxi one world under one leadership harmony, and believing that all must benefit from the um, niche, nature's um, resources. We all need to benefit equally, and other people should not champion. And the fact that one. There's no need for one power being exclusively maybe described as superpower controlling everything and and dictating to others what they should do. We should all come together. We should all have a say. Should all have a say at the table. And so if there are resources, we have every right to share resources. There are riches, we have every right to share riches. And it's the same thing that um, President Putin is also saying that. So definitely, there's dovetails into. Exactly the, the 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 goals and objectives of of the project and it is one of the main reasons why i believe that russia is uh, supports the program of course even though if we go beyond what we see be, behind the curtains just like the britio meetings behind the curtains the, the russia would also be worried am um, given the challenge that is posed by china's own rise i mean there's no doubt about that we know we have cases like that before when they had their their Misgivings and misunderstandings because um, Russia once realized that, um, and I must say that was the USSR period. Realized that China was really becoming um, a formidable force in in Asia in terms of military. But now, uh, Putin himself or Russia has no choice also than to clearly cement the relationship between the two. And in as much as the project will surely give the Chinese some leverage over the Russians in terms of global influence, global affairs, global politics, it's also one way or the other, at least, um, um, challenging U.S.'s dominance in, in many spheres of life in the world. And that is something that Putin banks his hopes on. And for at least for that reason, he stands to support the project. And he, maybe he has no choice, I must say.
0: All right. Thanks for, the, uh, for covering the general forum that took place. Uh, let's just move over to some of the remarks that Russia's president made during the press conference today. Uh, the Russian president said that Moscow has become one of China's main trading partners. And in general, you know, the welcome that was given to the president uh, in Beijing is evidence of the improving relationship between uh, China and Russia on all fronts. Do you think that perhaps the actions of the West in, in recent months and years, as well as their statements, you know, they've only forced Russia and China to improve on their ties and, you
1: know, create a more intimate and closer relationship Sometimes
2: European leaders, um, I must say, yes, um, for rational uh, actor theory, <laughs> we believe that leaders must always act rationally, but we don't tend to see that all the time, obviously, and that's not a natural thing, though. And sometimes European leaders also would have to be cautious the way they do it, and foreign policies can actually backfire. It, we do have a number of instances like that, right? And foreign policies are, are not only the typical actions you take, utterances are all part of foreign policy trajectories and conduct, and so leaders would have to be careful. Clearly, pronouncement that are not helpful pronouncement that are not healthy um get get towards russia or china definitely will tend to bind the two together even more and that's what we see because it, it's more like um we are in Asia, where Russia obviously has this identity crisis problem, which we do know either they are Europeans or Asians, that's something that they still battle with, which is something that the, for the Russian authority, that's not a problem because it's, it's actually to me and to many political commentators, we believe that it's, it's actually in the advantage to the advantage of the regime in power when the people have identity crisis. But beyond that, clearly we see a situation where the, where the concept the West. So people tend to think that it's a best alternative and that the best choice is the West. And so if Asia would have actors like um, Russia, China, India coming together, like how they have formed the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, more or less to challenge NATO, now that we don't have Warsaw, And then, obviously, any pronouncement that seems to even tell them that, yeah, indeed, you are isolated, yeah, indeed, we are the worst, you are not part of it, would definitely cement their relationship. So, I do believe that, yes, certain actions, certain pronouncements, certain remarks and comments from European leaders and American leaders have, to a large extent, Cemented the relationship between, of course, um, already the umbilical cord <laughs> um, relationship that existed between Russia and, and China.
0: Vladimir Putin also said that Russia is quite interested in developing uh, China's Road and Belt initiative. What opportunities are now open for other countries due to Russia's participation in this project? I think
2: that you know, in as much as we have quite a number of nations that are suspicious of Russia's activity, both the near abroad nations, the Baltic nations, the other four, fourteen republics that were part of the USSR. If Russia is added, than fifteen. In in spite of suspicion among some of them, a number of them also look up to Russia as their role model. So for Russia to to. Give a signature to the BR program. Definitely, we have a number of nations that will kind of raise their suspicion of the program and begin to also support the program and show keen interest. So, for, for Russia to openly, I mean, show support for the Chinese program, it says a lot, both within Asia and beyond Asia. It says a lot. It really says a lot. And he has, Vladimir Putin, Vladimir Putin has made it clear that. It is the sixth largest partner, right trading partner with with China. In fact, if you add Hong Kong and others, it's even going to be take a better position than the sixth one. And so. And Africa is the same thing. Is the largest China is Africa's largest trading partner. It's the same thing. Europe, I mean, the same, almost the same thing is happening there. If you look at the growth of their trading um, deficit with Europe and compared to America, it's almost the same thing that is also about to happen there. So, for me, yes. For Russia to do that, many, many of the nations, particularly the backing states, the near, near abroad nations that look up to Russia as their role model, I mean, it's more like your big brother believes in it. Why won't you believe in it? So we'll likely, to, we'll likely see a situation where many of them who have not yet shown open support for the program joining with, with that confidence and trust in the program. And it is also important because then we tend to see two agreeable uh, great powers in that program and to um the p2 being part of such a program i mean um the two permanent members on the on the UN Security Council from the Asian side, Russia and and China, or the other three obviously being US, UK and France. So if the P2 I mean both of them are in that that alone because that's what neoclassical realists argue, right? It gives them some leverage because when it comes to some sort of support at the UN Security Council I mean those who are part of the project to a large extent are in one way or the other members of a particular bloc, even if it's economic, (laughs) right? So you tend to have these ones with their military power and with their global status being part of an initiative that you are also part of, a close one for that matter. So that's in itself to open doors and many nations, small nations, particularly smaller nations are likely to also come on board with Russia, another big nation, um, showing so much support and trust in a program.
0: According to Mr. Putin, the Gaza hospital attack, which is an absolute tragedy and humanitarian catastrophe, may be a signal that it is quite time to end conflict. What role could Russia and China, and perhaps other BRICS countries even, play in resolving that uh, Middle Eastern conflict? For the Gaza hospital
2: catastrophe, indeed, um, I believe that is something that the whole world would cry for and wish that it had not happened. But unfortunately, it has happened. And I am glad that other voices like um, Putin, Xi Jinping and others are also speaking to the issue and calling for immediate ceasefire. Obviously, we do know that that's not realistic, though. Uh, given what has happened and what the Israelis are also determined to do, and the fact that Hamas itself has not also relented, and Hezbollah from the Lebanese side is also mod, and now we we hear accusation from the Israeli side that it might have even been caused by a field uh, missile fired by the jihad militant the jihad Islamic jihad jihad militant. <laughs> supported by Iran or based in Iran. It means that um, the whole thing is rather becoming more complex, and that's the nature of war. Sometimes it starts very small, but then it's become that complicated. You may have many actors also coming on board. But of course, giving breaks, and so far, how formidable the whole group is becoming, and giving the platform that has also been used to drum home the message of ensuring peace in, in Gaza. I believe that it is still important that they they call for a meeting, which I know they have already done. Russia has called. um, a, um The United Arab Emirates have also called together with Andes. And usually when Russia calls or China calls, you know that BRICS members will support. In most cases, a number of them will support that. So <clears throat> The fact that they have called for US Security Council meeting again to look at this particular with regard to the incident that happened at the hospital, I think that is the right way to go because always you have you have to pay attention to international law. But as to whether the parties, the main parties involved in the conflict will listen to the suggestions and adhere to the suggestions. That's another thing because it's more like anger is, <laughs> they, they are so high in spirit in terms of infuriation and both parties are not really, really so ready to listen to <clears throat> practical um, advice, pieces of advice that will see to the end of the war. I, to, to me, I think the best that has to be done for now is to relocate if it's possible, is to relocate. We should have a temporary hospital with all the necessary facilities at a safer place to a kind of accommodate such people than to keep the same hospital in the heart of the entire um, um, war. That's not really going to help. But of course, Russia, together with China and other BRICS members, I believe that they have that strong voice to to make meaningful suggestions that will help deal with the situation. As for the war itself, it's difficult to tell when it's going to end, given that both parties have have taken entrenched positions.
0: Finally, the Russian president also said that the United States are involved in conflict in Ukraine more and more. Given that Washington has voiced its support for Israel, and many fear an escalation of the situation around Taiwan, In your opinion, as an expert, what dangers does this pose for the world we live in? There is an article that um, (laughs) we submitted.
2: It's a book chapter, though, that it's yet to be published. And in that article, we're, we're looking at actually the quadrilateral and the quadrilateral relationship that exists, you know, between China, Taiwan, U.S., Iran. And it's quite an interesting article. We're making point to the effect that both China and the U.S. kind of play these countries that... They are great powers and most of the things they do, most of the things they say, it's more of a national interest something. So the U.S. may appear to be supporting Taiwan so much, but clearly if you go, if you look beyond the behind the curtains and beyond what we see, clearly you can see that they have also compromised in many ways in favor of China, compromised in many ways actually not in favor of Taiwan because those... Those initiatives or those decisions taken by them were in favor of their national interests, and they will do that. So we see a situation where any great powers are always in one way or the other supporting one fashion or one actor against the other. one's national interest is is the focus here. Um, definitely, that, that's what happened. But if you look at the current situations that as we have Gaza, Ukraine, Taiwan, <laughs> and the fact that all three events tend to have their great power backings, clearly, I believe Putin was hinting on a kind of third world war, but was careful not to um, hit the nail right on the head. Because the Taiwan issue, one most sensitive issue in in, in Asia, main Asia. Mm? Ukraine issue, one most sensitive issue in Europe. Mm? Um, Hamas Gaza Israeli, Israeli issue, one big issue in in in, 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 in the Middle East. May, and I would say even MENA because it's also if you look at Egypt, Egypt is involved. And Egypt, so in, in May and MENA, the, the Middle East and North Africa. So now if you look at the triangle, if you look at the triangle, it is not surprising that if care is not taken, it can degenerate into a global war. I mean there's no doubt about that. And that is what President Putin is hinting at. So it calls for the need for all and sundry to come to the table and suggest. Practical means, practical with practical um, panaceas to, to these conflicts that we see you know, around us. It is very important to avoid another world war. I don't think the world is ready for that.
0: Dr. Isaac Nunu, thanks for your take on these critical issues, really. And like you said, it is in fact important, if not most important, to avoid a third world war. Um, I mean, as ironic as it sounds and sort of self-evident, um, a third world war would be a real you know, problem for everyone living on the planet. So let's hope that our heads of states will work out a method to settle disputes peacefully and avoid bloodshed. As it is always the ordinary people that suffer the most, really. Dear listeners, uh, thanks for tuning in today. If you are interested further in these topics that were raised, go ahead and check out the Sputnik Africa website. Check out the articles with even more opinions on these matters. If you're not a fan of reading uh, long texts, feel free to check out our Sputnik Africa Telegram channel, TikTok account and other socials. As for the podcast, you can always listen to it on multiple platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. You can find the AfroVerdict podcast on Afripods, Castbox, Deezer, uh, Pocketcast and even Podcast Addict. So for quick access to great stories and updates from the continent and around the globe, make sure to download the Sputnik Africa application. Dear friends, that's that for today's episode. And that said, I will see you next time. Afro Verdict.
1: Brought to you by Sputnik Africa.